Everybody and welcome back as we continue our retrospective on the Stan Lee Steve Ditko run of the Amazing Spider-Man. If you haven't already listened to the previous two episodes, go and check them out. See what you think. Don't just jump in with issue 14. That would be silly. Speaking of issue 14, by this point in the run, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko had hit a well of creativity that refused to run dry. New villains were introduced, the comics form was stretched for an unprecedented three-part story. An annual was produced that was prepared to give Fantastic Four Annual Number 1 a run for its money. And all told, Lee and Ditko were producing a comic at the peak of its creative powers. If the early days had had a few missteps, then Amazing Spider-Man entered its tweens with confidence, although there would still be issues that didn't quite hit the pinnacle of the greatness of others. Case in point, issue 14's The Grotesque Adventures of the Green Goblin introduces a character that even Stan Lee can't help mocking, on the cover no less, yet one who would go on to become one of Spider-Man's deadliest and most controversial arch-foes. Does the Green Goblin look cute to you? Stan asks on the cover. Does he make you want to smile? Well, forget it. He's the most sinister, most dangerous foe Spidey's ever fought. The cover also bigs up the Green Goblin again in a separate bubble, informs the reader of the return of the Enforcers, and that the big guest star in this issue is that rampaging powerhouse, the Incredible Hulk. The Hulk had been in a kind of limbo state since the cancellation of his own comic, bouncing around from guest spot to guest spot. It's possible his appearance here was a tryout by Ditko for the gig of regular artist on the Hulk, as he was about to return as a co-feature in Tales to Astonish. The cover itself is inspired Ditko lunacy. Spider-Man is fighting this green goblin character in a cave as he clings to the stalactites for dear life. The comical figure of the Green Goblin grins like a loon and hurtles towards Spider-Man, throwing what we now know to be a pumpkin bomb from one hand whilst his finger gloves fire from the other. In the background, the Enforcers wait for Spider-Man to come within their reach. It's a visually striking cover more than it's a good cover. The colouring doesn't help it, to be honest, but the figure work and composition is pretty good, and the inset of the Hulk is very Jack Kirby, but also defiantly Ditko. The Goblin is flying a broomstick-slash-rocket here, and this will be the only time that he does so before changing to the more dynamic and sleeker glider. This was a good change, as the Goblin never really looks like he's actually sitting on the broomstick, more hovering near it. The splash page, rather predictably by this point, is better than the cover. The Goblin attacks Spider-Man, who has his back to the reader, with an explosive of some kind. Despite the sheer amount of copy, it's less cluttered than the actual cover, although the Goblin looks more like a fashion model, with his not-as-maniacal grin and his lovely long eyelashes. Maybe it's Maybelline. The story opens with a lovely shot that would become much mimicked by later artists. The Goblin mask hangs on a stand in the foreground, its expression still oppressively cheerful. In the background, a face in shadow, a man tinkers with his new flying broomstick, which he says purrs like a kitten. His appearance is somewhat bizarre. He has on a green body stocking with a purple tunic over the top. This is highlighted by purple gloves, pixie boots and a long flowing nightcap. 
From the get-go, he is presented as a man with a secret, and the fact that his face is in shadow gives him an aura of menace and mystery not present in the other villains so far. I honestly think the Goblin's entire appeal can be attributed to this sensational opening. There's a heavy implication here that the readers would recognise this face were it not in shadow, and this gives a dangerous edge to the story and the character. Of course, we now know that this is Poppycock, and there is no such familiar face to be seen, but at the time, this edge will have pushed the Green Goblin into the upper echelons of Spider-Man villainy. The Goblin zooms off to speak to the Enforcers, who have been in jail for a stretch since Spider-Man put them away some months ago. All four of them. The first part of the Goblin's plan hinges on getting these guys to play along, so he promises them vengeance against Spider-Man if they throw in with him. The Goblin then heads over to the plush offices of movie producer BJ Cosmos, who is desperate for a hit following his last smash, The Nameless Thing from the Black Lagoon in the Murky Swamp. Cosmos is surrounded by sycophants and brown noses, whom he dismisses just as the Goblin arrives to pitch him a sensational new idea. How about a movie starring Spider-Man? BJ creams himself over the possibility, toying with the idea of hiring Tony Curtis or one of the Beatles to play Spider-Man, but the Goblin tells him he can get the real deal for him. BJ mocks this notion, but the Goblin considers this a done deal and speeds off once again. What's that strong feeling I'm getting? Oh, yes, it's déjà vu! Stan has used this plot before in a number of different configurations, which leads me to believe that Stan had more of a hand in the plotting of this issue. It also may explain some of the other issues with the story, such as Spider-Man just guessing that the character's name is the Green Goblin. He's never introduced, and the Goblin never announces himself. The figure considered by many to be Spider-Man's arch-enemy, and Spider-Man just guesses his name. It's a good job he guessed it correctly. One can't imagine the grinning loon going down in the annals of Spider-Man rogues as one of the better names. Peter first hears of the Goblin on the Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, and the high school scenes are as entertaining as ever. Liz is really going after Peter, and for the first time, Peter is getting off on it and rubbing Flash's nose in it. This will build and build over the coming months, sometimes for comedy, but ultimately being quite tragic. Anyway, Spider-Man locates the Goblin, the Goblin spills the beans about Cosmos, cleverly making out this was all Cosmos' idea, and Spider-Man inks a deal for $50,000 if he'll appear in the flick. Peter then cons Jonah into sending him to take photos of the filming, convinces May to let him go, and lets Bessie get all jealous that he's going to get hit on by all those loose Hollywood actresses. This is all rather fast, as with the Mysterio issue, and whilst I understand the mechanics of the plot are to get Spider-Man into action ASAP, the scenes are given no room to breathe. Yes, it's funny when Stan refers to this as a true-life drama, some strange usage of the term true-to-life I wasn't previously familiar with, but some deeper explorations of the character's motivations would have been welcome. Jonah decides far too quickly to send Peter to L.A., given his hesitation to send him to Florida back in issue 6, and one would have thought that Jonah would have learned a lesson from the lizard debacle. Likewise, I have no problem with Aunt May's reticence to allow Peter to travel, but she too comes around far too quickly. It's a nice touch that Peter's not interested in the women, just the 50 grand, as this does emphasise the difference between Spider-Man and other superhero comics of the era. Peter Parker was always after a quick book, but overall this intro feels quite rushed. We're quickly on location in New Mexico. The Green Goblin entices Spider-Man away to rehearse, and very quickly our hero realises that this is the real Enforcers, not actors, and the Green Goblin really means him harm. 
The fight is well realised, and Ditko uses some excellent angles, including one where he has the camera above the Green Goblin, who is circling on the broomstick as the Enforcers surround Spider-Man below. Spider-Man has few problems with the Enforcers, and in another dizzying panel, Spider-Man flexes his muscles and snaps Montoya's lasso, but when they all dogpile on him as he's trying to avoid the Goblin's pumpkin bombs, Spider-Man starts to feel the pressure. Still, Ditko excels. The panel where Spider-Man pushes all of the Enforcers off him is excellent, and him using his webs to whip up a sandstorm so he can retreat to buy himself more time shows Peter's intelligence. There's a really weird scene next, though, where Aunt May writes Peter a letter, and Liz Allen asks if anyone has gotten any mail from Peter yet. I mentioned a few episodes ago that Stan Lee was never really any good at marking the passage of time in his stories, and this is a big downfall. Exactly how long Spider-Man was required to be in L.A. shooting this film has never been mentioned, neither has how Peter has managed to get time off school. The Goblin confronted the Enforcers and BJ Cosmos, and then a few days later, Spider-Man. Within the day, Peter has signed the contract, presumably under the name Spider-Man, which I doubt makes it legally binding, and within that day, Jonah and May have agreed to send Peter to L.A. Given that L.A. is only a five-hour flight from New York, we are left to assume that the shoot is the next day, presumably a Saturday. But why would Aunt May send a letter if he was only away for a weekend? Did Stan have any idea how long it took to shoot a film? Is Jonah paying for Peter to fly to L.A.? If he is, how does Cosmos assume Spider-Man is getting there? Wouldn't he have arranged first-class travel for his star? There's a great untold tale to be told here of Norman Osborn, the Enforcers and Peter Parker, all on the same flight, unknowingly sharing the same first-class cabin. To be fair, Liz hauling Flash over the coals for his lack of smarts is pretty cool, and further enforces Liz's growth as a character. More interesting was how much these high school moments seem to have influenced Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The series was created and produced by Joss Whedon, and the first four seasons owe a heavy debt to this run of Spider-Man. One of the arcs in the series was the redemption and overall development of a character called Cordelia Chase, who was a typical mean girl. Over the course of the run, though, she had some of the best character development in either Buffy or its spin-off Angel, and Lizzie's arc is similar. It's very unexpected that Lee, or Ditka, would take this two-dimensional, stereotypical bully's girlfriend character and then make the audience care for her, but that's exactly what they do. It's never explained why Liz thinks that Peter would be writing to any of his schoolmates, given that he doesn't give a toss about them, but that's one of the lesser problems of this story. Back in L.A., Spider-Man has taken a breather in a cave, and for my purposes, I'm going to pretend this is La Brea Tar Pits, and that this is the cave entrance used for the Batman TV show. The Goblin and the Enforcers move a boulder to trap Spider-Man in the cave, but as they themselves wonder, have they trapped him, or is it the other way around? This was a really cool beat as Spider-Man starts using the darkness to his advantage and proceeds to take the bad guys out one by one. The Goblin rebels, stating there is no way Spider-Man is going to thwart all of his careful planning, which I have to say gave me an unintentional chortle. What exactly was the Green Goblin's plan here? Firstly, luring Spider-Man all the way to L.A. for this seems remarkably pointless, unless the plan was to get B.J. Cosmos to stump up for an all-expenses-paid trip for them all, in which case, job done. Secondly, why exactly does the Green Goblin have a mad-on for Spider-Man? He says later that using the Enforcers to kill Spider-Man was his first step in creating a worldwide crime syndicate. But how would Spider-Man stop him from running a worldwide crime ring? Spider-Man's a local boy. Surely the Avengers or the FF or Thor would be far more of a threat to him in that endeavour. 
If he was just taking over the New York rackets, perhaps filling the vacuum left in the wake of the arrest of the big man, I could buy it. After all, what better calling card than announcing you killed Spider-Man, the guy who brought down your immediate predecessor? But worldwide? It makes no sense. Ultimately, I think this is why I never really bought the Green Goblin as Spider-Man's arch-foe. This first adventure is just too weak. The Green Goblin goes after Spider-Man because the plot says he must go after Spider-Man. With very little tweaking, this could have been a Daredevil story. Compare this to the Vulture or Dr. Octopus, both of whom I feel have a better claim on the title of Spider-Man's arch-foe, simply because they have a better reason to hate him. Ock even has something in common with Peter, something that would have to be grafted onto the Green Goblin in later stories just to make us cur. Nevertheless, the story continues with the Incredible Hulk making the guest appearance that was perpeted on the cover. Apparently, in one of those massive coincidences that happen all the time in comics, the Hulk was having a nap in the self-same cave that Spider-Man took it upon himself to hide in. The Goblin thinks this is a real stroke of luck, although later on in this same issue, he will blame the unplanned appearance on the Hulk for his plan failing. The fight with the Hulk is fun, especially the brilliant panel where Spidey punches him with all his might, only to be rewarded with busted knuckles. Spider-Man must then again use his brains to get the Hulk to smash the boulder, blocking the entrance, and then Spider-Man drags the unconscious Enforcers out of the cave, just as an army helicopter happens by. The Goblin flies off, BJ calls time on the movie, and Peter heads home, having made at least some money, as BJ offers to pay his expenses. As I alluded to earlier, Jonah presumably paid Peter's expenses, so Peter made out like bandit in this story. Peter then takes the bus home, at least a three-day journey, and even more incredibly, the Green Goblin apparently flew all the way home on his broomstick, and it took him a few hours less than it took Peter to drive. We end with the Goblin adopting his civilian guise again with his face obscured, and Peter vowing to be ever vigilant in case the Goblin ever return. This was, as you may have guessed, lovely listener, a real mixed bag. On the one hand, it's a rollicking romp, quite fun in its dialogue and situations. If you think of this as a comedy farce issue of Spider-Man, then there's a good time to be had. On the other, given the Goblin's place in Spider-Man lore, it's pretty sad that this is his first appearance, an issue where he does very little and accomplishes even less. I said that I suspect that Ditko had very little to do with the actual plot, and this is backed up in the way the story is structured. Stan Lee has mined this ground before, and would again, and it never worked, except in the FF issue, where it was the Submariner who owned the film studio. It worked that time, because the Submariner was an already established bad guy with motivation and character. Every other time Stan trotted out this movie studio plot, it was exactly the same, and each version was duller than the last. The other reason I suspect that this was a Stan plot rather than Ditko is the appearance of the Hulk, a favourite of Stan's that he couldn't let disappear into obscurity, and the rush nature of the ending also feels very Stan. There's no satisfying conclusion here, no wrap-up to any character's arc. The Hulk and the Enforcers just disappear from the story, the Goblin runs off, and BJ Cosmos abandons his film for no reason other than, oh, it's page 20. Granted, Cosmos spent no development time on the picture, so he's probably not lost anything there, but he still had a crew, a location, and Spider-Man. This seems to me to be a terribly shoddy way to run a business. All told, the first appearance of the Green Goblin is a damp squib when read after the fact. It's hard to imagine that from these rather small acorns a mighty oak would grow. I doubt even Stan and Steve thought this character would become anything of note. It's also a bit of a cheat as a mystery. 
rereading this with all that we know from later, there are no clues whatsoever that would lead the reader to be able to do who this is, largely because we've not met him yet. The main problem with this, though, is it's not a Spider-Man story. I said this about some of the early issues, but was willing to give the creators benefit of the doubt, though, as the strip hadn't really developed enough to truly know what a Spider-Man story was. By now, we're well aware of what a good Spider-Man story is, and this isn't it. Remove Spider-Man from this and substitute him for the Human Torch, and this story wouldn't really change beyond some cosmetic value. There's nothing that makes this intrinsically a Spider-Man tale. Again... I'm not dismissing Stan Lee in any way, but I suspect that this is how the strip would have been without Ditka. Fun and imaginative, but nothing and nowhere near as great as it was. The next issue introduces another new villain, and, as with most Lee Ditko collaborations, one that would become iconic and a large part of Spider-Man's rogues gallery. Craven, the Hunter. The cover features the eponymous Craven, who also provides the title of the issue, stalking Spider-Man who is caught in a net in the foreground. Craven wears leopard skin pants, a lion mane collar and wrist coverings. He does conjure up images of a man cosplaying as a tiger and the cover is suitably interesting. The chameleon also makes an appearance on the cover, billed as one of the first foes Spider-Man ever fought. He was the first, not one of... The cover grabs the reader, though, and we're left wondering how Spider-Man has ended up in this situation and what Craven is up to. The splash is excellent. Spider-Man adopts a classic pose, hanging upside down outside a window. The reader looks into the window from behind Spider-Man. Ditko handles a major plot point very subtly, with us only seeing the legs of a man in a green suit as he flees out of panel. As Spider-Man enters the window to tackle the men, a group that Spidey has been tracking as they've been organising bank robberies, the man in the green suit leaps out of an adjoining window. He changes the colour of his suit with a special gas, pulls on a hat and cane and hobbles off, as Spider-Man wonders what happened to the fourth man. We quickly learn that this is the Chameleon, the first major adversary Spider-Man fought, as the cover alluded to, way back in issue one. The Chameleon was deported after that issue, after his conviction for spying, and has snuck back into the United States, where he rather quickly realises that Spider-Man is still around, and still a dangerous foe. To this end, he calls in his friend Craven the Hunter, the most dangerous man alive, to deal with Spider-Man. This is a very good opener. It builds on an earlier event, giving the work a feeling of history, but doesn't exclude a new reader. It also sets up that Spider-Man is becoming more proactive in his crime fighting, actively hunting down criminals, albeit for money, and that the chameleon isn't a typically stupid comic book bad guy. Not only has he not returned purely to get revenge on Spider-Man, he isn't even interested in it. Spider-Man foiling the bank robberies the chameleon's got going on is accidental, and instead of confronting Spidey himself, the chameleon hands the task off to someone else rather than get his own hands dirty. A few weeks later, Craven arrives. Apparently, Craven is a big deal, a big-time hunter who has stalked everything that has walked, crawled or flew at one time or another, and J. Jonah Jameson orders Peter to the docks to greet him. This is such a big deal, Jonah goes to report on it personally and drags Betty along as well. The kids at school have also gotten wind of this event and are also present at the docks. This is the first time Peter's work life and school life have collided in this way. Betty has made it clear she's aware of Liz, and this kicks off the jealousy between Liz and Betty that has been a minor character bit on Betty's part for a few issues now. It's never mentioned that Liz and Betty both have exactly the same name. 
Liz openly flirts with Peter in front of Flash and Betty, and Betty reacts as badly as one would expect. This is a great scene. Peter is embarrassed and flustered, Flash angry and sarcastic, and Jonah doesn't give a shit about any of this teenage melodrama. He just wants pictures. Nothing is made of the fact that Peter is here in a work capacity, and given that he's gone out of his way to hide what he does, even refusing credit, this seemed something that could have been more developed. Imagine what Liz would have done had she found out in quick succession that Peter had an older girlfriend, was capable of the grand gesture, see his willingness to fight Dr Octopus for Betty in issue 12, and that he had a glamorous job with a newspaper. She'd have been over the moon. Craven arrives on a boat instead of on a plane because he travels with his animals, animals that apparently don't have to go into quarantine upon their arrival in New York. The girls are all agog over Craven, who's apparently all man, and he proves his machismo by combating some of the cobras and gorillas that escape their cages. The kids watch, stunned, as Craven reveals that he's here to hunt the most dangerous game of all, Spider-Man. Peter has a panic attack and is left stunned and wondering if there are other motives behind Craven's declaration. As with the chameleon opener, this was a great way to introduce Craven. The girls fawning over him establish his male charisma and his combating of the animals as everyone watches Slackjaw establishes his power. The really great moment here, though, is J. Jonah Jameson telling Craven that there are laws against hunting people in the U.S., This is the man who will, in the future, fund a scientist to create a robot whose sole purpose is to hunt Spider-Man. This is the man who, in the future, will fund an experiment that creates a supervillain whose sole purpose is to hunt Spider-Man. Can we say hypocrite? There's also some neat character beats with Peter amidst all of this, yet it doesn't feel rushed or cramped. Unlike the Green Goblin issue, this all feels organic and has enough room to breathe, and is genuinely funny in places. Jonah gives Peter a bollocking because he forgets to take any pictures. Betty is sulking at him due to Liz's flirting, something that's not really his fault. And Flash hates him more than ever for the same reason. Ditko draws a great panel of Peter sat on a curb as a street sweeper cleans up around him that pretty much sums up his mood. Craven meets up with the chameleon and we learn Craven is a normal man whose strength and speed are enhanced by potions stolen from a witch doctor of a hidden African tribe. So basically, Craven is on drugs. The chameleon uses the burglars from earlier to set up a robbery so that Craven can watch Spider-Man in action and get a measure of his worth. He then has a confrontation with Spider-Man himself, which seems to be accidental, but Craven emerges triumphant when he scratches Spidey with a potion that dulls his senses. The plot is building nicely in this issue as we reach the midpoint of the story. The fight between Spider-Man and the robbers is magnificent, with Spider-Man dancing and weaving all over the place, using his powers to great effect to confuse and bewilder the robbers. Craven is watching, observing Spider-Man's moves, and Spidey's first meeting with him is, as I said, by chance. However, in the captions, Stan says that Spider-Man's spider-sense warned him of danger, but the art makes it look like dumb luck, as Craven has his back to Spider-Man. Perhaps another miscommunication between artist and writer that nevertheless does not affect, in this case, the story. Let's pause a moment, though, and look at this scene and ponder Craven's name in greater detail. Craven, spelled with a C, means cowardly, and a few letter writers would be confused in later issues as to why Craven was so named. However, this is explicitly spelt out in this scene. Craven realises he's outclassed quite quickly and proceeds to drug Spider-Man, exactly as he did with the gorilla earlier. 
Craven is not a hunter in the true sense of the word. He only hunts when he can win, and stacks the deck in his favour with drugs and potions. Hence the name, Craven. We'll come back to this in a moment. With Spider-Man drugged, Craven boasts that he can finish him off at any time, but he lets Spider-Man go. He wants the time and place to be of his choosing. The next morning, Peter still has the shakes from the drug, but otherwise seems okay, even as Aunt May hits him with the news that he's been set up on a blind date. A couple of points of note. Craven is quite deluded in a scene set at the Chameleon's home. In this scene, straight after the scene where Craven has to drug Spider-Man to beat him, we see him imbibing more of his enhancement drugs and really looking forward to the challenge Spider-Man will present him. Even the chameleon looks worried, genuinely surprised by how ruthless Craven has become. It's possible that Craven believes himself to be as good as his reputation. It's even possible Craven doesn't believe using all these potions and tricks to hunt is cheating. Either way, it's a, a good bit, with the chameleon wondering if he's done the right thing by calling Craven in. Far more interesting from a long-term viewpoint is this scene with May arranging the blind date. The blind date in question will be with the niece of Anna Watson, and this plot will bubble along in the strip until issue 42, two whole years in the future, and long after Steve Ditko has abandoned the strip. Whatever Steve had planned for this, we'll presumably never know, but this incredibly understated and throwaway moment will have major ramifications for Peter Parker in the future. Taken on its own merits, though, this scene does not paint May Parker in a very good light. For one, at this point, she knows full well Peter and Betty have been going steady for some time. Betty even held a nighttime vigil with Peter for May while she was ill in hospital, so this cavalier treatment of her and a dismissal of Betty as not being housewife material seems rather callous. Secondly, her assertion that Peter will need a girl who'll make a good housewife makes me wonder if she'd ever even met Anna Watson's niece. Over at the Bugle, Betty is still annoyed that Liz Allen is all over Peter like a rash, and Craven is taking a meeting with Jonah which can only spell trouble for Spider-Man. Peter swears to get photos of Spidey and Craven, and Jonah makes Craven promise that his capture of Spider-Man will be above board and legal, which is, as we've established, rich coming from Jonah. Later on at school, Peter gets the shakes again, which the class predictably mock him for. Flash is particularly obnoxious, a man so totally dismissive of anybody who uses their brains, one wonders how he manages to function in everyday life. Fortunately, Liz and a few of the other girls stand up for Peter, pointing out that Flash is a massive jerk, but Peter is smart, and smart trumps dumbass every day of the week. Peter, for his part, doesn't seem to curb being far more wrapped up in his own problems. This is a nifty maturation of the character. He no longer gives a toss what his classmates think of him. They and the petty high school squabblings are so far removed from Peter's life now that he simply does not care about them anymore. They can mock and tease as much as they want. Peter just simply does not have the time for them or their childish behaviour. Again, this is fairly true to life and a realistic depiction of a teenager who's been through what Peter has been through. One of the way bullies lose control of other victims is when the victims no longer take them seriously. The best way to have anybody lose face is to not take them seriously. And Peter is inadvertently doing this to Flash, which is really bugging Flash, perhaps even on a subconscious level. Peter hasn't done anything to encourage Liz, and Flash knows this at some level. Liz is simply outgrowing Flash, and even though he may not know it, this is tearing poor Flash apart. 
With Peter worried, he decides to find Craven first, plant a spider tracer on him, and then wait until he's better to track Craven down on his own terms. Craven has other plans, though, and he's waiting for Spider-Man to start looking for him. In Central Park, the chameleon, disguised as Craven, lures Spider-Man in, and with Craven bringing up the rear, they strike. Spider-Man eludes the first trap, thinking his way out of the problem, something Stan does a great job of emphasising for any kids who may have been reading at the time. With the chameleon banging some drums to confuse Spider-Man's mind, Craven managed to latch a large iron manacle around Spider-Man's wrist and ankle. These manacles are magnetised and keep dragging Spider-Man's wrist and leg together to keep him off balance. They also have a bell in them so Craven can hear where Spider-Man is at all times. It's actually really quite clever, and the scenes of Spider-Man hobbling around the park trying desperately to pull apart his arm and leg are hysterically funny while still keeping it dangerous. Spider-Man hits upon the idea of gumming up the works of the manacles with his webbing, and this works, allowing Spider-Man to then go into stealth mode, using his spider senses to track down Craven. He snaps the circuit breaker in the park, removing the lights, plunging the park into darkness, and captures the chameleon pretty easily. Again, this is Peter using his brains. He knows his spider sense will give him an edge in the darkness, even over Craven. He then stalks Craven, shining his spider signal on him as he tries to escape, and generally turns the tables, forcing the hunter into the role of the hunted. Spider-Man mocking Craven as he keeps finding him wherever Craven tries to hide is wonderfully depicted by Ditko, as Craven gets sweatier and sweatier as he starts to panic. In a really nice touch, Spider-Man corners Craven in pretty much the same way he cornered the crooks at the beginning of the issue, with his webbing already blocking the way. And with Craven blundering around, it's only a matter of time before he wanders into Spider-Man's web trap. Spider-Man uses Craven's key to free himself from the manacles. He takes a few pictures and leaves just as the police arrive to investigate the blackout in the park. This is another great ending, let down only by the colouring. There are some really good panels where the colorist uses a lot of blues to emphasise the darkness, but then they'll randomly throw in a yellow background to ruin the mood. In 2010, this story and Craven's second appearance from issue 34 were reprinted by Marvel in a one-shot called Origin of the Hunter that tied into the Craven story going on in Amazing Spider-Man at that time. The digital recolouring was stunning in that edition and really emphasised the art in surprising ways. It's well worth checking out if you can find it in the cheapy bins. The issue closes with Peter having to turn down a date with Betty due to his blind date, a blind date that doesn't happen when Anna's niece gets a headache. Craven and the chameleon are deported, which Spider-Man watches from afar, thinking how great it would be to just get on that boat and leave all his troubles behind. Essentially, another reworking of the most dangerous game, this nevertheless scores as a great issue. Unlike the introduction of the Green Goblin, this flows as a story and builds to an impressive climax while still including all the requisite Spider-Man moments and adding to his problems with the addition of the Blind Date subplot. Craven vows to return at some future date, and next time he won't be so easily defeated. Despite winning, there's an ominous feeling as this issue closes. Nobody, probably even Craven, expected that he would return so quickly, though, as Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1 came out around this time, and is generally sequenced into the events here. To be brutally honest, it doesn't really fit well, given that Craven is in it and we just saw him deported, but this annual doesn't really fit into sequence anywhere else either, so this is as good a place as any, I suppose. 
Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1 took its cues from Fantastic Four Annual 1, one of the greatest comics of Marvel's early days, and there is a feeling that Stan Lee felt he somehow had to top that effort, or at least create something that was on level pegging with it. To be honest, there is nothing really novel about the story, The Sinister Six, but it is executed so well and delivers so much that the reader forgives this. I know I do. This is one of my favourite Spider-Man stories ever, and if I owned it as an actual comic, would probably be my favourite comic ever. The cover sets the scene. Spider-Man hangs from a web, looking on as every one of his major bad guys so far, the Vulture, Mysterio, Craven the Hunter, the Sandman, Electro and Doctor Octopus, all appear before him. Stan's cover copy is somewhat subdued, perhaps letting Ditko's magnificent art do the talking. It does boast about being 72 big pages, and that this is Spider-Man's greatest and longest battle with a galaxy of gold-darned guest stars. The logo is also multicoloured, a choice that doesn't really work. Other than that, though, it's magnificent. The opening of this issue sets the scene and brings readers who may have been picking up this comic for the first time up to date. We quickly learn that the authorities have managed to relieve Dr. Octopus of his arms, but Ock is mentally linked with them and manages to summon them to break him out of jail. He quickly arranges a meeting, a meeting already being attended by Mysterio, Craven and Electro, but one that is awaiting further attendees. I presume Ock sent an email to all these people booking this appointment in their calendars. Spider-Man learns of Ock's escape in the Daily Bugle and accidentally stumbles upon Sandman, although Sandman escapes into the sewer. And Spider-Man isn't really aware of who he was. Spider-Man returns home to see Aunt May in the attic weeping over a picture of Uncle Ben, and he wanders off lost in his own thoughts. Lee and Ditko are setting their story up very quickly, even with the expanded page count, but they do it with verve and style, and as usual the devil is in the details. Spider-Man drops by the bugle to taunt Jonah, even stealing a newspaper from him to catch up on the latest goings-on. He's almost knocked off his lamppost by Thor, the first but not the last gratuitous cameo in this annual. After changing back to Peter Parker, he is accosted on the street by Flash, who, goaded on by his cronies and nursing a bruised ego after Liz has been paying more attention to Peter, starts a street brawl. This is the first time we've seen Flash actually try to have a pop at Peter in a while, and Peter here avoids a fight, ducking out of the way, although he never stops giving Flash a mouthful of abuse. The body language from Ditko in this scene is stunning. Flash doesn't seem to really want to fight Peter, kind of backing away a little despite clenching his fists, and Peter is also backing up slightly, although in a far more defensive posture. Peter also doesn't want to fight Flash, but for entirely different reasons, but both men have been forced into a situation here. It's deflated when Flash lunges forward, Peter ducks, and Flash falls right through the astral form of Doctor Strange, the second gratuitous cameo in this issue. The scene is interesting because of what it says about both Flash and Peter. Flash is reticent about attacking Peter, as Peter has already kicked his ass, something Flash hasn't forgotten. Likewise here, Peter isn't as ready for a confrontation, even knowing he could turn Flash a new one should he so desire. The distraction of Doctor Strange, which, unlike the Thor cameo, does at least have an impact on the story, allows Peter to change to Spider-Man, to follow up on a spider-sense tingle that he received whilst Flash was attacking him. The next scene is great. Spider-Man follows the person that set off his spider-sense, but as he jumps him, the man's clothes simply fall to the floor, empty. It's a great visual, even more impressive when we learn that this is Sandman, and he's just disappeared into the sewers. Ditko always does great work when lurking in the filth and mire, and Spider-Man changing in an alleyway next to the overflowing dustbin and his subsequent exploration of the sewers are magnificent shots. 
Another nice touch is that Peter heads for home clutching his clothes, so it's nice to see he didn't leave them in that piss-strewn alleyway. Peter seeing May weeping is heartbreaking, as is his own little meltdown. For the first time since issue one, there is an extended origin recap, and again Ditko's body language tells the story. Spider-Man walks off, shoulders hunched. Later on, he sits on a chimney, his head low, and when he remembers the fateful shooting of Uncle Ben, he puts his hand over his face. The kicker, though, is Lee's dialogue. I can't forget that I'm partially to blame for Uncle Ben's death, Spider-Man thinks to himself, and the fact that I'm the only one who knows it doesn't make it any easy to live with. A better summation of Spider-Man's mission statement I can't think of. This leads to Spider-Man suffering some kind of mental block, and his powers simply vanish. This, to be fair, is a real plot contrivance that goes nowhere, yet was oddly adapted almost wholesale into the movie Spider-Man 2. Without his powers, Spider-Man then struggles to get home, carefully shimmying over a flagpole and down a building. He's observed by the FF, gratuitous cameo number three, who are just tooling around in the Fantastica and thinks Spider-Man is just goofing off so they don't help him. Back at home, Peter wonders what he will do now he's normal again, but doesn't give it any thought to how ridiculous this all is. It was an unusual plot beat for the strip to take at this point. Marvel Comics had traded on the super-powered thing being more hassle than it was worth, but it was the Thing and the Hulk characters with obvious physical deformities who longed to be normal again. Peter often wished that he'd never got his superpowers, but he really wished them away, at least in these early days. Later, after Stan Lee was the sole scripter, this would become a recurring plot point, with Peter either quitting or trying to get rid of his powers on a semi-regular basis. Typically, it's at this point that the Sinister Six strike. Using his tried-and-true plan of putting Betty Brant in danger whenever he wants Spider-Man, Dr. Octopus sends the Sandman and Electro to snatch Betty. Electro didn't get the memo about going in disguise like Sandman did, preferring to drive the car in his full costume, which, rather hysterically, means that the tip of his hat is pressed against the roof and bent over. Wouldn't you know it, though, Jonah recognises the Sandman, despite his cunning disguise of Fedora and Flasher Mac, but has to ponder if that is in fact Electro driving. This was an intentional moment of uh, camp comedy. Also, Aunt May has dropped by the bugle to talk to Betty, apparently never having heard of the telephone, and Spider-Man and Electro, perhaps confused by their simple orders of kidnap Betty Brandt, grab May as well. The Vulture tells Jonah to let Spider-Man know, and fortunately Peter is there to hear it. So far, this is a reheated version of some prior plot points, especially it's followed by more gratuitous cameos, as Jonah calls both the FF and Captain America, to ask where Spider-Man is. It's nice to see the acknowledgement that at this point Cap hadn't even met Spider-Man. The Human Torch calls for Spider-Man as well, thanks to his flame skywriting, and the X-Men see this but decide that it's nothing to do with them and just ignore it. Professor Xavier's dismissal here perhaps suggests why the rest of the world thinks mutants are jerks. Peter, despite being sans powers, decides to saddle up, and the story starts here to become a visual tour de force. Realising that he hasn't lost his powers, which is as casually dismissed as it sounds, Ditko then lets it all hang out with some career-best artwork and some of the best splash pages seen in comics to this point. 
He tackles Electra first and then Craven, successfully beating both opponents and locating the cards that will take him to the next location. In both cases, Dick calls the fight's culminating gorgeous full-page poster-worthy shot. There are a couple of eyebrow-raising moments, such as Spider-Man grounding himself to escape Electro, something that should have killed him, and if we're being honest, he doesn't actually beat Craven. He simply tricks him and steals the card, but hey, the guy's in a rush. There's a brief interlude where Peter realises his power loss was psychosomatic, a subconscious manifestation of his guilt over Uncle Ben, and there's a lovely scene where the Human Torch offers to help. The relationship between the Torch and Spider-Man is one of comics' greatest bromances, because, on the face of it, these guys don't have all that much in common, yet have managed to become good friends over the years. Another friendship that has blossomed over the years also gets its start here, Otto Octavius and May Parker. Throughout this entire adventure, May seems to be under the illusion Dr. Octopus is merely a soft-spoken and somewhat misunderstood individual, while Betty keeps having to remind her he's actually a criminal. It does lead to one great line. We mustn't prejudge just because he has some problems with his arms, maintains May. Mysterio and the Sandman are next, and Ditko, with the Mysterio image, equals his previous work, but with the Sandman, surpasses it, with the single best image in the book. There's a battle with X-Men Robot, which is interesting, but shows the limits of Mysterio as a physical villain, and it's a nice touch that Sandman defeats himself by making his trap airtight. But it's the little scenes that provide the fun. J. Jonah Jameson talks to spiders, thinking they can communicate with Spider-Man, and he's so distracted he forgets to publish a special edition. Even Dr. Octopus starts to panic, admitting he never dreamt that Spidey would get this far. Spider-Man then faces the Vulture, who, in a rare moment of self-reflection, points out that Spidey has only defeated him in previous battles due to his webbing. This is a very jaundiced account of previous battles, but we'll give the Vulture a pass. This is the best of the actual fights so far, in that it is an actual fight. Spider-Man, with his web shooters removed, has to think his way out of this, which always produces the best results, and his defeat of the Vulture feels like a real win. Spider-Man makes his way to the next location, a castle that has been apparently imported brick by brick. Inside, Dr. Octopus has designed a massive goldfish bowl, and he lures Spider-Man into it so he can attack him as a real octopus would. Sadly, he's lacking the poisonous venom, inky secretions are a beak, but by this point I'm revelling so much in the glorious silliness of this all, I don't care. Of course, Spider-Man wins, but there's a wonderful moment where Spider-Man points out the main problem with this story. If they'd all ganged up on him and attacked en masse, they would have won. I did like that Stan hung a lantern on this, because all the way through the issue I was thinking much the same thing. The story is wrapped up nicely. Aunt May still thinks Ock is misunderstood and Spider-Man is icky. Betty Brandt is curious about Spider-Man's true identity, and May nearly has a heart attack about missing the Beverly Hillbillies. It all ends with the Sinister Six locked in the same cell. A continuity nightmare, if one thinks about it too much. This is, nevertheless, a stupendous romp. Lee is clearly having fun sending this up as much as he can, and Ditko likewise seems to be revelling in being allowed to simply plot a paper-thin story that allows him to go wild with his art. There are a number of different versions of this story that are worth noting. The first time this was published in issue 9 and 10 of Spider-Man Comics Weekly, a number of the characters hadn't made their debut in the UK at that point, so the art department substituted a number of the cameos, such as swapping Doctor Strange for The Thing and Giant Man and the Wasp for Reed and Sue Richards. 
Another reprint of note is Marvel Tales issue 150. In that reprint, editor Tom DeFalco altered the art and dialogue in the Electro sequence so Spider-Man doesn't kill himself. Although this is the end of the story, the annual is then full of what would nowadays be called bonus features. There's a gallery of Spider-Man's famous foes, a one-page recap of all his most famous villains, that would prop up spur pages in reprint mags for years to come. More interesting to fans was the Secrets of Spider-Man, which detailed how Peter gained his powers, his strength limits, and where he places in the pantheon of other Marvel heroes, his agility, web shooters, and the many ways his webbing can be applied, how his spider senses work, and the intricacies of his costume. There's even an explanation on the dramatic license of Ditko showing Peter's spider sense lines and her face mask. These were the kinds of things I devoured as a kid, and they are all populated with awesome Ditko art. In addition to a few posters, there are also lesser-seen features on J. Jonah Jameson and Betty, Peter's classmates, his house, and a guest star page. These are very definitely of poorer quality interest-wise than the other stuff, and therefore deserved of their rarer status. Finally, the whole kitten caboodle closes out with a lovely little three-page story entitled How Stan and Steve Create Spider-Man, which paints Ditko as a shadowy artist slaving over his work and Stan as a workaholic idea factor. Another favourite from a kid, it was the first time I think I was really aware that real people made this stuff when it was reprinted in an old UK Spider-Man summer special. Issue 16 of The Amazing Spider-Man is sadly a throwback to the Green Goblin issue, being another rather slim plot that feels very much like a backdoor pilot for Daredevil, a strip that had recently been launched by Marvel. Duel with Daredevil nevertheless features an excellent cover and splash page that showed Ditko wasn't skimping on the art even if he phoned in the plot, if Ditko can be in any way blamed for this one. Apparently Ditko was never a fan of there being a lot of guest stars in the strip, feeling it diluted Spider-Man, so as with the Green Goblin issue, it's possible this was all stabbed. The aforementioned cover features Spider-Man and new creation Daredevil still in his early black and yellow suit, battling it out over a big top. Plus points to Ditko for having D.D. be hanging from his billy club on a trapeze. The ringmaster is pulling his best Doctor Strange impression in the background. The Splash is Spidey on his own, battling all manner of carny, with him clearly outnumbered but loving it. Two stunning pieces of Ditko magnificence. We open the story with Aunt May at her cliched best. She's nagging Peter to meet Murray Jane, nagging Peter about dressing warmly, and generally nagging Peter about his life. She nags him so much, he quits studying. That's serious naggage. This is starting to become one of the problems with Aunt May, and indeed a number of the supporting characters. Unlike Jonah, May has no real character development to speak of, and quickly falls into the trap of being characterised in two ways, nagging or near death. Stan would realise these limitations after Ditko left and write her out of the book. Peter, fed up, switches to Spidey to let off some steam and runs into the mugging of a blind man. As with most of this issue, Ditko's art is the saving grace in this scene, brilliantly conveying Spider-Man's speed in a stunning page-wide panel that has him knocking out all the muggers. The blind guy Spider-Man rescues turns out to be Matt Murdock, and after a few pleasantries are exchanged, Matt then changes to Daredevil and spends an entire page talking to us, the reader, about his powers. No, really, that's what he does. He has to be talking to us, because as explaining everything he's doing and how he's doing it makes no sense, unless he's aware he's in a comic book and addressing the reader. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. 
Well, Andrew, you're thinking, Spider-Man talks to himself all the time, and you don't moan about that. Well, that is true, lovely listener. And while Spider-Man's monologues are often exposition, they frequently aid in the story as well, and are quite obviously internal monologues, helping Spidey gather his thoughts. This isn't that. Daredevil explains everything, as if he's talking to somebody else. This isn't an internal monologue. This is a teacher explaining to his class how something works. I get what Stan is doing. He's introducing Daredevil to a reader who may not have read Daredevil. But this just adds to the whole feeling that this is all this is. This isn't a Spider-Man story per se. It's a blatant and unsubtle plug for another magazine. I wouldn't mind if it was just this page, but that's the impetus for the entire issue, to plug Daredevil. It's at this point we are introduced to Daredevil's supporting cast, Foggy Nelson and Karen Page, and they invite a blind man to a circus. Of course, the circus is being run by the Ringmaster and his Circus of Crime, one of the sillier bad guys of the 60s, it has to be said, but one I do have a soft spot for because of just how lame they really are. They plan to run the same scam in every appearance, Hypnotise the crowd, steal their money, but to entice people in they are promising an appearance by Spider-Man. As dumb as this is, did the ringmaster not think Spidey would see these adverts? It does play into the idea that Spider-Man started as an entertainer. Of course, Peter does see the ads and decides to go. After all, the proceeds are going to charity. This was a nice beat. The Peter Parker motivated purely by money is long gone, and we see him here actually willing to do this for charity, even if the fact he's been advertised as appearing without actually asking him doesn't seem to make his spider sense tingle. He even buys a ticket, despite him clearly being able to get in without paying. Peter then goes to the bugle just to tell Jonah he's going to the circus, which made no sense other than to have Betty get all upset that Peter is going without asking her. He can't ask her, because how can he go as Spider-Man and Peter Parker? The issue then follows the template for issue 14, in that it's just a series of action set pieces, rather than an engaging story in its own right. Ditko's art is glorious, as usual. His innate visual style is at its best when dealing with the ringmaster and his wacky hat. But that's pretty much all this has to offer. A hypnotised Spider-Man fights Daredevil, who can't be hypnotised because he's blind. Daredevil then helps Spider-Man recover, and Spidey mops up the bad guys. As we've come to expect, Ditko's fight choreography is wonderful, and he uses the items lying around to great effect, press-ganging dumbbells, safety nets, and trapezes into surface admirably. And the banter is funny in places. A sequence where Spider-Man rides the great Gambino, who has been fired at him from a cannon, is genuinely hysterical, and Stan goes wonderfully overboard with the alliteration, having the ringmaster call Spidey a brash, boastful, brazen boar at one point. Spider-Man is able to deal with the crime circus on his own, and Daredevil switches back to Matt Murdock in time for Spider-Man to use the ringmaster's hat to return the audience to consciousness. It all wraps up rather neatly, with Matt Murdock giving his card to the ringmaster in case he needs a good lawyer, which I admit was was a, a good gag. Overall, though, this is inconsequential. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not dumb like Stan's movie producer plot, and Spider-Man and Daredevil being on good terms from the beginning is a nice change. Even the old misunderstanding leading to a fight trope is inverted, as Spider-Man isn't in control of his own faculties during that part of the story. Spider-Man and Daredevil also don't really team up, D.D. quickly realising that Spider-Man doesn't need him, which is, again, a neat twist. 
Ultimately, though, this was a flimsy plot, highlighting fun over character and rather forgettable in the grand tapestry that was the Lee Ditko run. Jonah, Betty, May and even Peter himself don't appear enough to warrant attention. There's no school stuff and subplots are placed on the back burner in service of an issue that is more interested in highlighting that Marvel has another comic book on the stands you may want to go and buy. The cover to issue 17 is good, but for the first time Ditko's Spider-Man looks a little screwy, anatomically speaking. His legs are wide apart as he swings, shooting web fluid out over the human torch, who flies between he and the Green Goblin, who makes a startling return in this issue. Below are a number of innocent bystanders, including Jonah, Betty and the high school crowd. The splash, as with the Craven issue, isn't another cover, but a part of the story. Peter is in high school and pondering whatever became of the Green Goblin, who he hasn't seen since issue 14. Peter's classmates mock Peter for studying in class. Well, that's a crime. But Flash isn't mocking Peter. Flash announces to all that he has an announcement to make after class. More evidence of Peter's lack of interest in the pack mentality. The class claim he looks like he's reading the latest James Bond mystery, when in fact Peter is daydreaming. To be fair, it doesn't look like the rest of the class are actually working, so I assume there's a substitute teacher in today. Flash, as usual, craves attention and loudly announces that he has important news to all within hearing range. In one page, the artist and writer have set the strip up brilliantly. On the very next page, we learn exactly what has happened to the Green Goblin. He's been upgrading his tech and practising his technique. The next time he meets Spider-Man, the story will end very differently to last time. Ditko pretty much rehashes the last appearance of the Goblin, but expands it to a full page, showing off his new glider and a new range of pumpkin bombs, which are, oddly, created to resemble ghosts and frogs. The Goblin again strips Egg out of his outlandish garb and into civilian guise behind a large mirror which conceals his identity. The Green Goblin is relentless in this issue, a foe to be wary of for sure, as his beef with Spider-Man remains unexplained and unknown. The worst kind of enemy is one where you don't know what they want, and such it is with the Green Goblin. His reasons for attacking Spider-Man and casting him in his main adversary are not particularly well defined. And had this actually gone anywhere, maybe I'd feel differently about the Goblin as a character, but he's just a cipher. He has no discernible reason to dislike Spider-Man other than just because. Even knowing how all this will turn out with the reveals of Norman Osborn and Harry Osborn and all of that, we're still left with a mystery that was never really solved with any true satisfaction. Osborn can't hate Peter Parker because of Peter's relationship with his son, as that relationship doesn't exist yet. He also doesn't know Peter is Spider-Man yet. As mentioned when I looked at issue 14 at the top of this episode, he initially wanted to set up a worldwide crime syndicate, but I'm still unsure how Spider-Man would have stopped him from doing that. In this issue, the Goblin has no motivation other than revenge for beating him last time. But that's a false motivation, as the Green Goblin seems to have targeted Spider-Man by plucking his name out of a hat. The Green Goblin is simply too undefined as a villain to be that interesting in these early appearances. At school, Peter learns the big news flash hat, that he has organised a meeting of the Spider-Man fan club. Peter is, of course, not invited. Peter isn't too asked, but Liz uses this opportunity to sink her claws into Peter further, telling Flash that if Peter is not invited, she'll withdraw the invitation to use her dad's club as the venue. 
This is remarkably manipulative and cougarish behaviour on Lizzie's part. She's arranged with her father to rent his ballroom for free for her boyfriend to organise his fan club meeting with every intention of getting off with another man. Flash is far too dumb to realise what's happening and Peter simply doesn't care, but this is an interesting take on Liz as someone used to getting what she wants. There's an implication later on in this story that she comes from money and this would be in keeping with a spoilt little rich daddy's girl. There are hints of this in later issues, but this is the closest the series ever really came to fleshing out Liz's backstory. Still, for comics of this vintage to even have such subtext was rare and to be commended. Peter leaves Flash and his merry band and immediately runs into problems. An aerial robbery involving a helicopter and costumed goons. He switches to Spider-Man only to make a monkey out of himself when it is revealed that this isn't a robbery, but a film shoot. Duly humbled, Peter heads for home to the sounds of the general public, mocking Spider-Man for his ineptitude. Given all we know nowadays about film production, this scene is rather silly. An action sequence of this complexity would not be filmed by only one camera, and if it was, it wouldn't let the take run on for so long. The street would be shut down and cordoned off, and there would be signs up explaining what was going on. However, it does set up Spider-Man's fall from grace at the end of the issue, with people already thinking he's a nut job, and Peter's embarrassment, which manifests itself in his snarky responses to the public, which is always a joy. It does also demonstrate Spider-Man's impetuousness and youth via a nifty little action sequence, and perhaps when looking at the overall plot, it was deemed necessary to bring Spider-Man into the story earlier. Without this scene, Spider-Man doesn't actually do anything in this issue until halfway through. J. Jonah Jameson is delighted by the news that Spidey has made him an ass of himself, but slightly less delighted that his newspaper is carrying an advert for something called the Spider-Man Fan Club. What a wonderfully economical way to bring Jonah into the story. Peter ignores Jonah, he's only there to pick up Betty. It's worth noting here that Peter seems to spend this entire issue in a permanent state of irritance. He's like Elliot in Leverage in that he spends most of the issue scowling at everyone, and ironically the only person who makes him smile is Flash in the very next scene. Peter's walking Betty home when they run into Flash and Liz, and Flash's devotion to Spider-Man can't help but make Peter smile, and he even manages to convince Peter to make an appearance at the evening. Granted, it's as Spider-Man, Flash still doesn't want Peter there, but... You know, Peter will take his little victories where he can. What's great about this scene, though, is the interaction between Betty and Liz. Liz does everything she can to demean Betty in front of Peter, from asking if she's put on weight, to calling her Miss Brandt, to highlighting the age difference between her and Peter. And Stan has a ball dialoguing this page, which is complemented beautifully by Ditko's art, which likewise is played for laughs. Peter's facial expressions are especially impressive, and his command of body language, especially in Betty and Liz, has really been better. Whilst the scene is a comedic one, there are some nice emotional beats being mined from Betty fearing she's losing Peter to that blonde boy-stealer, to Liz's open flirting with Peter in front of Flash and Betty, to her blackmailing Flash into letting Peter attend the fan club meeting. Peter doesn't even realise that Liz has manipulated him also, when she callously dismisses Betty as not being allowed to attend due to her role as Jameson's secretary. Betty is doubly wounded when Peter doesn't ask her to go as his date, which he can't if he's attending a Spider-Man. On the face of it, this is exactly the same beat as last issue, but here feels more earned and less forced than Peter foolishly dropping his ticket to the circus in front of her. 
Of course, the fact that this is a proper Spider-Man story and not an advert for Daredevil probably helps as well. Also notable in this scene is the continuity. Betty mentions that Spider-Man has saved her life three times already, references to issue 11, 12 and annual 1, and Flash mentions the events of last issue here, said to be a month ago. Interestingly, both of these are not highlighted with footnotes. After dropping Betty off, Peter's spider sense tingles as the Green Goblin walks by. One single panel of the Green Goblin, whose face we don't see, musing of the newspaper advert is enough to set up the climax. Again, Lee and Ditko telling so much story with very little space. Peter switches to Spider-Man and can't locate the tingle again, so switches back to Peter, only to have the human torch show up and prevent an armed robbery. There's another comedy beat where the public fawn over the torch as he gives out autographs, even giving one to Peter, who is internally berating the more popular torch. Peter even tells a passing kid he has Spider-Man's autograph, and does the kid want to swap? The kid asked if Peter's a nut. Lee and Ditko have, at this point, nailed the soap opera melodrama of Spider-Man, and here we see them nail another equally important part of the strip. It's humour. Nowhere else in the Marvel Universe was Lee so successfully funny as he was in Spider-Man, with these scenes genuinely eliciting smiles from the reader. Thankfully, with this issue, we seem to be back into the tightly plotted affairs, with Jameson suddenly realising that if this Spider-Man fan club thing is popular, Spidey may emerge as a hero, and Jonah can't have that. He asks Betty to call Peter to have him take photos, and he too will make the trip to the event. Unlike other places where Jonah's presence felt like he was the only Bugle staff writer, this seemed earned. Jonah would want to go to this, and Betty tags along after making sure she only contacts Peter after she knows he will have left. Marvel again at the plotting and characterization. All of the characters are being eased into their roles with consummate ease, manipulated by master plotters to take their positions without it ever feeling inorganic. Witness also Betty's jealousy. She deliberately and willfully doesn't call Peter immediately so as to not put him in social contact with Liz. Betty is painted as a very insecure here. It's a nice layer to add to her character. There's another repeated beat from a previous issue with Peter trying to avoid yet another blind date with Mary Jane, but at least this one is also played for laughs, and with everybody in attendance and at the party, we're off to the races. Ditko provides a wonderful panel at the fan club meeting, similar to a tracking shot in a movie, where all the characters would have a walk and talk leading to another character's dialogue. Moving from left to right, we see Johnny Storm and Doris Evans, then Jonah and Betty and Liz and Flash, before Spider-Man makes an appearance. He doesn't even get a chance to show off before the Green Goblin arrives and spoils his day. One of the most popular and familiar bloopers in Spider-Man's history occurs in this scene, where Flash, for some reason, calls Liz Allen's dad Mr. Brandt. This is fixed in some reprints of the story. The fight scene here at the end is one of the tensest Ditko has yet done. In addition to being in a cramped environment, again Ditko putting Spider-Man at a disadvantage, Spidey also has to protect the bystanders. He does this by making it all look like an act. Remember, the public has no idea who the Green Goblin is at this point, but Johnny isn't buying it. The crowd lap it up, and Ditko again excels with his creative action scenes, with Spider-Man bouncing around, desperately trying to avoid the Goblin's bag of tricks, whilst the Goblin toys with him. Johnny spots a few two-bit hoods here to rob the takings and joins in, ironically preventing Spider-Man from taking out the Goblin there and then. This was the only bit that felt forced. These hoods would have to be a special kind of stupid to try and rip off a joint where they know Spider-Man's going to be. It does allow Spider-Man to let the Human Torch tackle the Goblin whilst he changes back to Peter Parker to allay Liz Allen's suspicions. 
This is the only time that I can recall that the Green Goblin ever fought anyone else in the Marvel Universe. And it's pretty cool how quickly he gets the torch's measure. The Goblin wins this round. Peter makes a quick reappearance, but his hair is tousled and his suit wrinkled due to his quick change. Liz runs her hands through Peter's hair just as Betty looks over. Just when you thought this issue couldn't get any more quintessential Spider-Man, this happens. With Betty sobbing and the torch down for the count, Peter has no choice but to run off and change again, and return to the fight. But no sooner does he get the upper hand than he overhears a terrible phone call. Aunt May has had a severe heart attack. Without a curve or anything else, Spider-Man flees. The crowd think he's a coward. J. Jonah Jameson expresses great joy, and the Green Goblin gloats as he too flies off into the night. Only Flash still believes. Peter quickly runs to the hospital where Aunt May lies near death. Peter cares not for the public, who seem to have decided that Spider-Man is a heel. Arriving home after a long night, he takes off his costume and hurls it against a wall. Why, no matter what he does, does his life never go right? Is this the price of being Spider-Man? The Return of the Green Goblin is an absolutely magnificent issue, arguably the best of the run so far, and the single best example of what this strip was. This is a quintessential Spider-Man issue, featuring everything that makes the series special and unique. There's humour, drama, character moments, action and pathos, all wrapped up in some magnificent Ditko art. There's a reason this character became Marvel's flagship, and issues like this are it. And that seems like as good a place as any to bring this episode to a close. Beginning with a Green Goblin issue and ending with a Green Goblin issue gives a certain circular feeling to it, and I'm a big fan of my symmetry. Next time when we do a Lee Ditko story, we'll be picking up this story, which is the second part of a three-part arc, plus some other delights with the return of the Scorpion, the return of the Ringmaster, the return of the Green Goblin, and a new villain, the Beetle. But before we completely call it a day, we'll have a quick break and return with some emails. Thank you, Green Lantern. I'm not Green Lantern. I'm Booster Gold. If I were Green Lantern, my costume would be green. Now, wouldn't it? Hi, I'm the French Meltdown from Tumblr.com. My dad, FKA Jason, and his friend, Roy Charlemagne Cleary, have a new podcast called Silver and Gold they want you to listen to. It drops on Tuesday, December 22nd, 2015. My dad is a huge Green Lantern fan, and Roy is a huge Firestorm fan, so they teamed up to record a podcast about Captain Adam and Booster Gold. Inspired by the Fire and Water podcast, Dad and Roy are reviewing each adventure of Booster Gold and Captain Adam one issue at a time. I really want you to listen to this podcast because, honestly, my head will explode if my dad tells me Captain Adam's origin story one more time. The podcast can be found at CaptainAdamBlog.com on December 22nd, 2015. Please listen and drop them a line at CaptainAdamBlog at gmail.com. Save me from my father and the endless torment he puts me through with his constant lectures about Captain Adam. And I guess Mr. Gold is pretty cool, too. www.CaptainAdamBlog.com December 22nd, 2015. The Silver and Gold Podcast. Gee, thanks, Captain Adam. Next time, be a hero by remembering... You're not. Okay. 
couple of emails came in about the Han Solo episode that I did last time. Jason Trenner emailed in, where he said, uh, well, that was a lot of fun. Oddly enough, the idea of a Han and Chewie open sandbox video game set basically in the same time period of at least the last two novels has been kicked around as one of the greatest video game ideas never done. Of course, why won't somebody want to do that, as it'd be the closest to GTA or the Saints Row games you could get with Star Wars? Though maybe not try to go quite as weird as the last two Saints Rose games. Looking forward to seeing what you do next, Jason. That's, that's a really good idea, Jason. Doing a, a GTA-type game with Han Solo and Chewbacca as smugglers on different planets. Yeah. One of the things I did think of was instead of this young Han Solo movie, which I'm still not too sure about, but we'll see how that goes, would be a Han Solo animated series. Because, um, you know, you could get Mark Hamill to do Harrison Ford's voice. Because Hamill can do uh, a pretty good Harrison Ford impression. Thank you for emailing in, as usual, Jason. Always nice to hear from you. Speaking of people it's always nice to hear from, Gene Hendricks emailed in. Just says uh, Han Solo novels. And uh, great job covering the A.C. Crispin Han Solo novels. When I first read these, I was worried that another set of books about Han's backstory would contradict the Brian Daly books that you also mentioned. Crispin, though, was far cleverer than that. Putting these books in between the chapters of Rebel Dawn was a stroke of genius, and that moved this trilogy of books up several notches, in my opinion. As you said, there's a great amount of character development in these books that doesn't rely on bringing a lot of future events or dialogue into the story. Yeah, we all know how it's going to turn out, but I think she did a great job working with that restriction, which is not something everybody can do. I do agree with you that the Rebels cast should be the ones to get the Death Star plans, and maybe having Kanan and Ezra die in battle with Darth Vader, whilst Hera gets the plans to Leia would give us that satisfying ending to the story while setting up the beginning of Star Wars. The Marvel story was also really good, in my opinion, but then again, I enjoyed pretty much all of the Marvel run. After Jedi, there were a lot of restrictions placed on the book, which meant that telling good stories got harder and harder to do. The fact that Fett had to be put back into the Sarlacc meant that some hoops had to be jumped through, but I think they did a decent job with it. Gee. Yeah, as I start, Jawas of Doom issues are one of my favourites. I, I love that issue. I know that they had to put Boba Fett back in the Sarlacc at the end, but as I tried to point out in my synopsis of it, the Sarlacc eats the Jawa Sandcrawler. There's nothing to say Boba didn't get off. You know, we don't actually see him be eaten. And in Marvel comics, or comics of any kind, if you don't see a body, it doesn't mean they're dead. And in fact, sometimes when you do see a body, it doesn't mean they're dead. So I, I, I stick by the idea that in my head canon, that's how Boba Fett got out of the cell. Like, Thank you, Gene, for emailing it. I appreciate it. Gene is the host of numerous podcasts, including the Hammer Podcasts, the Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, and he has a Patreon page at patreon.com, the Hammer Strikes, which you can go and check out if you so wish. And he also has a hammerstrikes.com webpage and a blogspot, the hammerstrikes.blogspot.com. So you should check all of those out because Gene's a good guy and uh, has one of the nicest voices on the podcast network, so you should check him out. Also, finally tonight, in email, Chris has emailed in again, Chris Franklin. Hi, Chris. Host of Supermates with his missus, Cindy. And a great episode. I will admit I never cracked a Star Wars novel. I know that makes me a bad person. It doesn't make you a bad person, Chris. To be honest, the characters in Star Wars have always appealed to me more than the mythology, so that's one reason why I've bypassed many of the books. But the Crispin novels sound like something I would enjoy, so I may have to check those out. Molly Ditko. Santa got my letter, Chris. Well, you have now listened to another Lee Ditko episode, so I hope it wasn't a disappointment to you. As I say, the Lee Ditko stuff is uh, is more time-consuming than I thought it would be. I had originally planned to have all that done in four episodes. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened, 
because uh, that was the third Lee Ditko episode. Now, if I was to do it in four, the next one would have to cover 22 issues. So uh, I don't think that that's going to happen. So it may end up being eight by now. So, uh, you know, whatever. We'll see. We'll see how it goes, because I do like spending time on it. All right. Thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next time. Uh, I've got nothing planned for next time, so who knows what's going to happen, and who knows what you're going to get. A couple of things have been written. A couple of things are in the pipeline. I may just carry on with Lee Dicker. You never know. See you next time. Thank you for joining me. Bye-bye.